And I think that's the beauty that, you know, with everything, food connects people and gardens as channels towards that um, also connect people. So I think it's a really inclusive activity um, and with so many varied benefits that I really, yeah, it's just something that I absolutely love. Hello and welcome to the Biology Society of South Australia podcast, where we bring you conversations on all things biology in our state. My name is Elizabeth and I'll be your host for this episode, where we sit down with Hannah Twaits, a PhD student at the University of Adelaide, who's been living and working within Adelaide's urban agriculture scene. She's been getting to know Adelaide farmers through business, local markets, her research, or even in her own garden. Her research dances a fine line between the qualitative accounts of people and the social sciences and the quantitative research of the benefits of gardening. Whether you're an avid gardener or you're just getting started, Hannah's research is sure to inspire you to get your hands in the dirt. Hannah, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I would love to start off this interview with a broad question. (laughs) What is urban farming? Mm, Thank you, yes. So essentially it's um, growing food within the urban boundary is the absolute simplest form. Um, So often when people are thinking agriculture, they're thinking about broad crops across acres and acres of land. Urban agriculture is bringing those crops into the urban boundary. Um, But we're also talking, we're not just talking about crops at your community garden, but we're also talking about what people are growing in their backyard. We are talking about commercial scale. There are folks that are doing it on rooftops. um, And anything that, as long as it's within the urban boundary and it's going to be used for food, fibre or fuel, But typically in the urban setting, we're really focused on food. And personally, I'm interested at the household level scale. Mm. So like everyday people growing their own food in a veggie patch or a windowsill. Yeah, exactly. So from the backyard to the balcony scale, um, if you're growing food at home, then that's the um, urban agriculture that I'm particularly interested in. Mm. It's funny because I've been tending a little veggie patch in my backyard Mm. for about three years now. And I never knew that I could call it urban agriculture. So I'm so glad I have like a new, like, it's kind of like a buzzword or it's like a, um, it's quite enriching to think like, I'm doing agriculture for myself. This is, I'm farming right now. I never thought of it that way. Absolutely. (laughs) And it's one of the things I've spoken to with my research colleagues is there's this perception that if you're growing food at home, it's just a hobby. And there are people that are doing it, you know, for the kind of hobby benefits of fun and enjoyment. But the reality is that it is an agricultural system. Um, there are people using it that for more than just, um, you know, I guess aesthetic qualities. Mm. And um, when we talk about it, I think talking about it in terms of urban agriculture and urban farming and that people are urban farmers brings also a bit of pride to what people are doing and a sense of worth that perhaps it hasn't been valued up to this point. So it is, it's really exciting that we're hearing this language out there and um, hopefully we hear more of it. Mm. Before we jump into like what the Adelaide scene is like Mm -hmm. for urban farmers, I would love to hear about how you got into urban farming and Mm. urban agriculture and 
yeah, how you came into this space. Yeah, I think um, growing up in a in a house where um, the garden was feeding the family, thanks to my mother, um, who before her had a father particularly who grew. I can still picture my grandfather's tomatoes out at Port Piri behind the back shed and the, the biggest things you've ever seen. Um, so I grew up in a house where eating from the garden was the norm and it's not actually until I went to high school that I realised that that wasn't the case for everyone. It was more so in primary school. We were in um, One Tree Hill so it was more rural urban in for that part but when I went to high school it was down the hill more in the suburbs and so all of a sudden it was people who didn't necessarily grow up with the same background that I had this value on growing from home and some of that was necessity you know it's not as though we had a lot of dollars necessarily to be able to do it so therefore it's a it's an obvious answer but it also tasted better and we a whole range of different food as a result and so I think having that real solid base in your childhood it gives you something to reference back to and so as I then you know grew up and found my feet I've done a range of things at university so I was looking at world politics international studies And whilst doing that, we also, um, with my husband, we started a company called The Productive Garden Co, which was bringing together my love for gardening, which had kind of permeated through into being a member of community gardens, then being a secretary of a community garden, having that whole lifestyle, then wanting to work in it. So we started our own business about helping people grow food that they could eat. And then I ended up back at university doing environmental management and sustainability. And then... I had a pause while the business kept going and then it's just been kind of sitting in the background these these amazing connections we met so many folk and I always say that gardeners are the most generous people and um, we met these amazing folk through our career this business that coming back now as a PhD student it gives us the opportunity to reconnect on a different level with people who we had been working with in our edible garden business and gives us the opportunity to now amplify the work that they're doing through my studies and I'm really yeah really grateful that I get this opportunity to talk about these amazing urban farmers um, who are really encouraging a lot of people to give it a go um, and support them in their own urban farming. What I love about that story is that your research didn't start so much with a question, but it started with people mm. and it started with connection. Mm. I haven't heard many research stories like that. It, it's like so heartwarming yeah. to hear that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Thank you. So I know I just said that it's not exactly mm. a research question, mm. but what is your research topic mm. for your PhD? Thank you. Yes, uh, for me, it's trying to understand the potential role of urban agriculture in building community resilience in the face of climate change. So like you said, I'm coming from a people perspective. Um, all along, um, I'm most focused on the human dimension. And so this is an opportunity to understand yeah, what role, if any, urban agriculture can have on um, fostering community resilience. And I think, you know, given lots of stresses and things that people have in their lives and we're anticipating more in, to some degree, 
yeah, we, we really want to look at that benefit um, if there is a benefit. And um, uh, anecdotally, I know <laughs> some of what's being said already, but getting the research behind it, I think it's really critical mm. um, to empowering the voices of people that are out there and they are fostering urban agriculture for themselves and for others and an opportunity to do research to support that work um, is something that I'm very, very grateful that I have. I feel like all of the gardeners I know, like they could talk about why they love gardening yeah. for hours and hours and hours. And you're right. I don't know a lot of research behind it. Um, I know that there was a paper that came out a couple of years ago that said that soil microbes can like physically make you happier. Like it can have an endorphin effect in your body to make you I think it was release serotonin or dopamine. Have you heard that before? Yeah, I'm yeah. trying to think. I, I'm not very good with the science on that one. Um, but, yes, I've heard um, that one that it's a particular particular type of soil microbe that it literally is the good feeling effect. You oh know? My gosh, so, cool. <laughs> so when people say, oh, I'm stressed, and they say put your hands in the soil, that's why they say it. So wow. mm, it's amazing. There's, yeah. like, so many hidden benefits of gardening. Yeah. Could you, like, tell us mm. what you found so far like the main benefits mm. people gain mm. I think so so yes yeah, so at the moment I'm looking in and the the information that I've found so far is the best part about urban agriculture is that it's multifunctional you know it's multi-dimensional you've got social benefits you've got ecological benefits and you've got economic benefits so the interesting thing with the research is that when people have chosen just to look at one, um, so economics, for example, over in the global south, which we used to call the less developed or the developing world, but you know that's not politically correct, there you find that people are using gardening more for subsistent farming overall than people in the global north. And there the economic benefits are more obvious and greater. Here we've noticed in the global north, in Australia we are classed as global north even though geographically (laughs) we're physically located (laughs) south. I know, you've got to always love who invents these things. Um, And essentially we are finding that where we used to garden for leisure and recreation, we are shifting to things like economic relief and urban sustainability um, in ways that we didn't before and that's as different pressures come forth and people use gardening for different different means. I think there are varied, varied benefits and I think so some of those I've mentioned, there's also physical and he- mental health and well-being benefits and for me I'm also interested in the community connectivity and sustainability aspect. So people through COVID, for example, um, found a lot of relief and refuge in their gardens and some of the community gardens were still available at certain times and people were really really needing those but also even they've reported about people going into their own garden and that nature connection and that nature immersion and how that was helping them deal with the stresses that were really happening on the outside of their bounds and so I think urban agriculture has so many different ways that it can help people and when you look at it as a whole system then those benefits are really, really obvious. Um, but it's how do you harness that and how do you 
how do you get um, the benefits different people out of there? Recognising also that not everyone wants to grow food. You know, not everyone wants to farm, but they might want to eat that food or they might want to enjoy that space or, you know, so there's different ways. And I think that's the beauty that, you know, with everything, food connects people and gardens as channels towards that um, also connect people. So I think it's a really inclusive activity um, and with so many varied benefits that I really, yeah, it's just something that I absolutely love. I really relate to the COVID aspect. So I started gardening a little bit before COVID Mm. existed, but then right when like everything shut down, the borders closed here in Australia and, you know, we started having lockdowns, like I really did find myself going out into the garden. Like Mm. I'm so glad that there is research behind that because the benefits that I found, like it was meditative, it was physical. I didn't have to like go out in public and like be scared of the virus. It was really something that I've now carried on out of COVID, if you can say we're yeah. out of COVID. Yeah. <laughs> um, yes. Yeah, mm. it's something that I've carried on out of it and I'm now starting to meet more and more people who've had mm. similar experiences. Yeah. And, yeah, so yeah. I can I just relate to that so much. Yes, and it's, it's interesting because um, so there was a survey done, the Pandemic Gardening Survey, um, and it was done by the amazing folks over at Sustain. And it was great because it was just this fairly, you know, um, straightforward questionnaire survey and people were able to listen off all those benefits and it was the first time I kind of saw oh yeah you know this is this information is really being captured and it is so critical and I think that's when here in Adelaide we really realized how lucky we were to live in a low density city many of us not all but many of us the majority of us we live with yards whether it's a backyard or a front yard it's a it's a space um, which was not offered to people for, for example like in Melbourne you know you had a lot of apartment blocks and things like that and I think we realized that Things are shifting. Adelaide is certainly, you know, growing a lot of infill and things like that. But historically in times of stress, I think this is the interesting thing to remember, historically in, t- in times of stress, we have in the past shifted to gardening as a means towards food relief, as a means towards, um, yeah, securing our food and um, economic benefits and health and well-being. And we did that, for example, in the World War II era with the Victory Gardens. Could you quickly describe what a Victory Garden is? Ah, yes, yes. So so essentially it's to do with the World War II era in other parts of the country. It also happened in World War I, but we were particularly in the Second World War. And you had the resources um, of the country were going towards um, the war effort, as it were, in different ways. And so we had a time where we needed to grow more food, essentially, and to be able to become more self-sufficient, in this case, community-sufficient again, because people would grow and then they would sell the produce and provide the funds to the war effort, or they would sell the produce and they would fund themselves or their community and there was all different ways that people took it, but it was all about increasing the volume of food that was being grown at that time. And so it was a real, it was quite a um, 
orchestrated event. So it was pushed by those at the governance level. That this is a really, it's a campaign. We're going to do this, you know. And there was a lots of um, nationalism kind of that had been bound up in amongst all that as well. But it was so successful because people were growing. And so essentially it was upping the efforts. And so it was really, it's a really fascinating thing to look at. There's not a lot of detail on the volume and quantity because it wasn't recorded. You know, these were happening across backyards across Australia. Um, but some historians have had a go at looking at the various records and it was definitely noticeable that the outputs um, were significant, highly significant during that time in terms of food grown from the home garden. Essentially, we've seen the same thing happen again. And one of the um, aspects of research I'm undertaking is looking at those two periods and how different and also how similar they were. So the motivation was quite similar. We saw a global event which impacted large food supply chains, which in our current day are a lot more fragile because they're longer. So we saw that, we witnessed that on our shelves in the supermarket. So we, as a response, more people started growing talking to the market gardeners that I know and the suppliers that work from the Adelaide Showground Farmers Market, they have never been run off their feet so much. It was an absolute boon time for Mm -hmm. them because people suddenly turned to them and went, I don't know this skill. I need to know this skill. I realise now how important it is. And because, as I said, gardeners are the most generous people, as they were handing over, you know, their leafy greens to grow, they would also teach them at the same time about how they could do it. And people would come back and say, this didn't work, how do I do this? And it was just this amazing exchange of knowledge. And even though they were growing at home, they were building this community at the showground market, which was also interesting in itself. So, yeah, there's, yeah, it's just amazing, I think. COVID has taught us lots of different things. And I think the... It has really taught a lot of people to value uh, where food comes from and the skills involved in growing food. The shock of going to the supermarket and seeing, like, oh, we've sold out of onions. Yeah. Like, that's never – I've mm. never seen a supermarket sold out of onions before mm. because people were doomsday prepping, I suppose. They, yeah, it was really scary for folk. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah I was definitely scared. Yeah. I was like, I can't cook my pasta without my onions. But <laughs> – yeah, going back to it is a skill that everyone has, mm. even if they've never practiced it. Yeah. 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 And that knowledge is out there. It's just about figuring out how can I learn it? Yeah. And yeah. I think that's one of the things. So um, I was lucky enough, I conducted a survey over November and December last year, 2022. And It was a community survey to really look at the metropolitan South Australia. So folks living in Greater Adelaide from Gawler down to Salix Beach and talk to them about, through this survey, about what are their practices and perceptions of urban agriculture and what connections and impacts and barriers do they see between urban agriculture, community resilience and climate change. And it was really fascinating because we're very lucky. We had over 500 folk um, participate. I was very excited for that and very grateful. And now I have the wonderful task of going through all that data. So um, that's that's also a fun challenge to have. And um, what we anticipated seeing were, were things like time and space. 
And the other one, though, was knowledge. So what we had when I was talking about the Victory Gardens era is that we had people who were already growing. And essentially, when there was this public service campaign to grow food, um, so because of the different challenges to do with supplies back then, people were essentially upscaling. So they were already growing and they were growing more. And what we had in this COVID era that we've had is that people have gone from not growing to growing and that's quite different in itself and so we see this global search trend when you look at the google search trends of april 2020 and the number for how to grow vegetables <laughs> it spikes right then and it's like mm, i wonder what that was i was a couple of those Googles exactly. for sure. <laughs> yeah yeah so it's just a fascinating difference between um the two eras where you had knowledge that was built upon um and then you've gone to this one where it's, okay, how do we get this knowledge? And I think that's something that I anticipate will be interesting to see from these results from my survey, that if knowledge is one of these aspects, then what role do individuals, communities and policymakers, so the governance, not just the grassroots, but the governance level as well, have so that they can support this as well? So I want to, yeah, so essentially I'm trying to generate new knowledge so that these different varying levels um, of people in, in our communities broadly um, have opportunities to look at how can we support this. If we determine that urban agriculture is something um, that does build community resilience, how can we help that um, mechanism grow and what do we need to do to be able to support people to make that grow? Hmm. So knowledge, if I understand correctly, knowledge was an unexpected barrier towards growing your own food? So knowledge is one that uh, it's hard because I can, you know, I haven't done the full analysis yet, but it's certainly one that I'm seeing come out. And it's interesting, the other thing that I've seen at the very you know, surface level look that I've had at the moment is one of the questions asked is where do you get your knowledge? And there was a range of options from, you know, um, websites and magazines and things like that. Um, even without doing the in-depth analysis, people known to me was the was the leading um, result here. And so it's people are turning to each other. So as much as people did turn to Google, <laughs> people are still turning to that. And I think that, you know, it'd be interesting to unpick that about, um, you know, was it that they were talking to the generations before them? Is that where it's coming from? Or were they talking it to colleagues to, I don't know, boost their confidence or, yeah, things like that. Um, but I think, like you said, gardeners are so enthusiastic and will happily talk to anyone <laughs> about gardening. So there's something in that as well. It's a connection that's built between people, those conversations that they have. Mm. Absolutely. And then the other two barriers that you briefly mentioned, Mm. that was time and space. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Those are my barriers. Yeah, (laughs) totally. And again, like, you know, if we're looking at the different eras, you know, we are now, you know, it's the norm. The 40 hour week is the norm. Often there's more than one person working that, you know, where it used to be that you had a main breadwinner and someone else at home. Now that's not necessarily the case. I mean, there's a varying array of households. Not everyone lives in a two person, two adult household, but the reality is that people are working people are in paid employment um, for more time and that then um, you know can translate to less time for other things the other interesting thing one of my research colleagues pointed out was it's also about perception of time people may turn around and say oh I don't have time to do xyz 
but they're making a calculation in their head. And depending on your motivation is whether or not, and if it's something perceived as difficult, it might feel like it might take more time and you don't, you know, so there's a lot, it, again, in everything we do, there's a lot to unpack. Um, and in space, I mean, the reality, like I mentioned, is we are very lucky to live in a low-density city from the perspective of growing food, but we are seeing more infill. And so people, we don't have the traditional quarter-acre blocks that we used to have and people are gardening on a much smaller scale and I found that when we had our business that lots of our focus was container gardening and gardening in small spaces and the fact that just because you live in a small yard doesn't mean you can't grow and really encouraging people to do that so I think it's also if people have learned from the generation before then they need to modify some of that because they don't live in the same spaces that they're their parents might have or they might have been the first to come to this country and they are trying to apply what they used to do in another country here and the climate's completely different the soil's horrendous in some cases <laughs> you know you got to learn how to if you're in certain areas work with clay soil and that's you know might be completely different to somewhere else so mm. so much gardening like you said before Mm. like it's knowledge transfer but then Mm. another part of gardening is just trial and error (laughs) it is it is I always we used to always notice that there was like you would in our business we would always ask people like how do you grow your tomatoes because everyone grows them differently there's you know upper stake there's people who hang the strings there's people who let so many branches out there's those that pinch it out and you know and then of course there's different breeds and there's yeah so I think that's also the beauty of it though because there's no one right way to garden there is what works for you and what works for your garden and you know that microclimate there and that this is the hard bit it may change from season to season so what worked last season might not this year but that is also the reality with you know the impacts that we um, are seeing and are projected for climate change and so we know that rainfall patterns will change we know that heat then the level and the temperatures that we're experiencing will change and Gardeners can already tell you that because especially if they've been gardening a while, they will say that what they did 10 years ago does not work to the same extent that it does today. You just got to find enjoyment in getting it wrong. <laughs> I know, I know. And I think that's it. I think the long-term gardeners really do. They just kind of go, well, so be it, you know. The number of people that I've spoken to, we are very, very lucky, live in a rental with an enormous fig tree. And I'm very grateful that that's there. And essentially half of it is for the birds. We can't reach it anyway. And the, half, the other half is for us. And I think it's that same attitude. If you can kind of go, you know, I'm not trying to do everything perfectly, then it is a lot more fun. <laughs> I have a funny story about our fig tree at home. So we've had it for about 20 years. It's a nice old fig tree. Yeah. And we have rainbow lorikeets that yes. come and enjoy the figs. And every year my dad goes out at the fig tree and he talks to the birds and he says, listen, enjoy the figs, but finish the fig yeah. that you're eating yeah. before you move on to the next <laughs> one. And it's crazy because every year it works. Like if yes. he doesn't have the talk to the birds, yes. they're pecking at all of the figs. And until he has a stern talking oh. to them, 
they like finish the fig they're eating. That anyway, really is that is brilliant. Garden yes, tales. no, I can. Yeah, I can relate. Yes, I do love the rainbow lorikeets. <laughs> oh, they're gorgeous. Yes, yeah. That's I guess another part of gardening is you get to know who's living in mm. the environment that you are as well. Absolutely, yeah. it is, and it's yeah, it's just the opportunity to be connected with nature. I know there's there's a term biophilia, which is really about the the notion that you know we came from this environment and that's why we have this innate connection and this is why things like the soil microbes um, making us feel good um, you know occur because we are essentially at one with and so that that connection with nature um, I think is really vital I think you know it's an opportunity to stop it doesn't necessarily want anything from you and you know in a world where you're you know required to do xyz for your work your university or you know your family and you go out there and you know you can just stop it's the opportunity to to be part of that is yeah really really amazing and I hope more people can that's so beautiful (laughs) um all right so we're about half an hour into the interview um for this last part I have some questions that have been put forward by the BSSA community relating to your research and what they want to know about gardening and our listeners too So the first one is how do people make connections to their surrounding community through urban agriculture? Yes, that's a good one because I think automatically when I first tell people about my research that I'm looking at community resilience and urban agriculture, they assume that I'm going to be talking about community gardens and community gardens are absolutely important and fantastic type of urban agriculture that happens in our cities. But... The reality is that more people have access to growing food at home and that potential um, is of keen interest to me. And so I wanted to know, okay, so if you're at home, you're growing food, how does that build community and can it build community? And then I started thinking about it's not just the act of growing. So there are people that I know that they get together with friends and they for years have gone from house to house to house to house and they will garden together. And so they enjoy gardening together, but they want to garden in their own spaces. And so instead of going to a community garden, they do it that way. And then there's also, so that's the act of gardening. There's also the models of output use, for example, um, harvests being shared or traded. So a good example is our neighbour next door, Rose, puts her mandarins on the back fence when she's got an excess of mandarins. And so she just did it automatically. We moved into the parental mandarins appeared and we think, you know, this is manna from heaven. (laughs) And so... We then started a relationship with Rose and started to get to know her, learned her name, and she learned our names, our children's names, and, you know, we then look out for each other automatically. There's other ways. There's amazing um, initiative that actually began here in um, South Australia called the Growfree, um, which have the Growfree carts. So essentially this allows people who are growing food at home to share their harvest. 
you can do it yourself or there might be one already existing on um, that are publicly publicly accessible on the street and essentially they're carts that you put your excess produce on and the saying is give what you can take what you need and so it's understood that you freely give and you don't mind if anyone takes and so you can do it anonymously or you might happen to chat to someone while they're doing it so you start those incidental conversations. Um, We always noticed we knew more neighbours when we gardened in our front yard because people would walk past um, or the neighbours across from us would be gardening in the front so there's a few different ways there other people take their produce and they go to produce swaps so you've got um, quite a few around Adelaide and they might happen on a monthly basis or a fortnightly basis some are connected to things like a community market others are standalone events that happen in a park that people have just started themselves and then it's kept going and essentially you bring what you have excess of and you take um, what others have brought that you that you're interested in and so it's interesting that the idea that you can still meet people even when you're growing in what you consider a really private space is fascinating and then I think when you go back to the other part about growing I've had a conversation with people about someone who had grown food for for all of their lives they felt but they got to a point where they physically couldn't do it anymore so they had the space and their neighbours were in one of those um, infill type places so there were more houses there than they were um, before it was knocked down and rebuilt and so they didn't feel like they had the space and they ended up creating this relationship where they ended up working the land for this woman and then she got to eat homegrown produce and so did they and that was the agreement they came to and so they got all the benefit of being able to garden and she's still got all the benefit of having a garden. So it's. I think it's really interesting. I think finding the ways, um, and councils are quite good at facilitating things, and neighbours and your local markets um, at the community level are really good ways of also learning about what things and what initiatives are out there and um, how can we get to know each other. Growing connections. Growing connections. <laughs> in the soil and in the air. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. And I think that's it. Growing connections in what I'm exploring is about, you know, that ultimately will help grow community resilience. So for me, it's not just about self-sufficiency, it's about community sufficiency. And a resilient community is one that um, grows together. And you can take that figuratively or literally. (laughs) Um, And, you know, adapts and finds ways to deal with things that come towards it, because we don't all have the skills as a singular you know some of us have amazing skills um, that others don't have and collectively when we bring those together the sum of its parts what is it the whole is then greater than the sum of its parts uh, the next question is is climate change impacting people's ability to grow food in urban environments? Mm. So this is where I'm excited to read my data. <laughs> so I'll, I'll know more about the Adelaide perspective after data analysis stage because this is something that I asked. So essentially I asked a couple of questions, one being do you feel that climate change is currently impacting you and do you feel climate change will impact you with regards to urban agriculture and if so, how? And 
so we've already seen I had this amazing woman reach out to me only yesterday she had done my survey completely unknown to me she emailed me this beautiful additional information that she really wanted to include and it's because the survey had provoked her to reflect on her own journey and she'd been someone who had been gardening for a while and she really pointed out so she'd gardened in Adelaide and then she'd moved to Canberra then she moved overseas and then she'd come back to Adelaide so she had also seen different climates in Australia but also experienced the difference between growing in Adelaide and then coming back 10, 20 years later and trying to grow again. And then she also spoke about being in that same spot and how, like she's been there over 10 years now and how she's growing now to how she was in this Adelaide location. And it was amazing because she was talking about the prevalence of shading that she now has to do, the active shading, so the shade cloths up, which she didn't have to do 10 years ago. She argued probably about five or six years ago was her perception that she really had to start doing that. And I think the sun feels stronger. (laughs) And so it's one of the interesting things is climate change projections talk about increased weather events. So we're expecting it to be hotter for longer we're expecting it to be on average hotter so and we're also expecting rainfall to change so whilst we might potentially have increased rainfall in winter we're going to have drier summers um, and that exacerbates other risks like fire but it also means a more stressful environment for our plants so I think one of the really obvious things is people trying to cope with the beyond 40 degree days and trying to find ways that their plants will cope and so even you see it on the gardening forums just like backyard vegetable growing in Adelaide there was a conversation that had so many responses the other day which was do I water at night or do I water in the morning (laughs) the age old question question. and I think it eventually fell down morning because the night there's a risk that the snails will then (laughs) you attract snails if your water hasn't completely dried off anyway I'm not going into that I'm sure someone many people will disagree whichever way I I land but it's watering and how to water wisely when um, it's less less obvious for people that um, potentially are on mains but then there's a cost associated with that as well but certainly those that aren't on mains water will be the first to tell you how much their water use has changed Um, and also yeah, having to actively work to to water at certain times, to shade, you know, for certain degrees, um, to ensure that you're removing. I think John Lamb was just saying the other day, this year we're anticipating a summer of peaks and troughs. So instead of the sustained heat waves for 2023, it's looking like it will spike and drop, spike and drop. And we've just seen that happen literally yesterday to today. So that's looking like it will happen. But that also means that people need to make sure that some of that shading is being removed for that. So, you know, when people are saying that time is an issue and then you've got, you know, more work potentially to grow food, um, yeah, it can be a bit of a perfect storm. So there is certainly an impact that's already been seen, but gardeners are resilient. (laughs) They find ways. So the the advent of wicking beds um, is really interesting. So you've seen the use of that skyrocket. Um, So essentially people are growing in um, container gardens that have a reservoir. Uh, So they've been made to have a reservoir of water and then the water wicks up through a substrate and 
various layers. And so instead of relying on water being applied from the above, you essentially, a gardener would fill the reservoir. So often that's a a tube, a pipe, um, that's filled up with a hose. And then when that's full, you see it just come out of the overflow pipe. And that means that the plants, um, particularly your really thirsty ones like cucumber, things that are quite watery to begin with, they have that ready supply. So it gives our gardeners who are resilient finding ways to be able to deal with this. So they're like, okay, so time's an issue, heat's an issue. Here's an opportunity to satisfy both of those things there. You know, if I need to be away at work and I can't necessarily water, then if I've already done this, then the water's there available to my plants. So it is, it's really interesting how people find ways through things. That's amazing. Yeah. Gardeners, man. I know, I know. They are clever, clever (laughs) folk. And I think that's it because there's no one right way. And they get talking to people, you know. I mean, even how you build a wicking bed, (laughs) there's so many different ways and products. But the, the best thing I think also that I really love about gardening is it's not restricted to those who might have money. I think, you know, um, and, you know, through different periods of time and in different parts of the world and even different suburbs or subsections of our community gardens were there because of economic relief and um, subsistence and food security and things like that not just because you know it was a cool thing to do so financially it can come over financial barriers because you don't have to have the whiz bang (laughs) garden bed to grow food you know essentially you need light you need good soil and um, you need good plants I must say (laughs) good seedlings do help um, and seed but you know the inputs aren't necessarily restricted by finances Mm. yeah it's accessible to everyone exactly and you know just because you're this or that doesn't mean the plant will grow you know what I mean like it's a real leveler (laughs) 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 a leveled playing field yeah the BSSA committee they were interested to know whether or not people had a barrier when thinking about pollution in the urban environment Mm. like whether or not people are concerned about contamination because of pollution from cars or Mm. whatever there is in the urban environment yes have you come across that I know that so there's certainly when you're looking at the urban environment and particularly when people are greening former industrial sites um, the idea of um, heavy soils and soil contamination is a risk um, and something that needs to be considered so my colleague um, Dr Matt Solomon he his PhD was focused upon soil health and so he went across 12 sites in Adelaide and some of those were community gardens and there was a couple of commercial like market gardens in there as well and tested the soils and looked at the different ways that you can mitigate any issues that might be there and so what they found was that people were really um, really quite on top of things so one of the best ways if you're ever worried if you're working in a former industrial site and or if you're worried about soil contaminants having your garden that you're growing food in in a contained raised garden bed um, that is limed and so essentially you're not getting that leaching happening between the the soil um, and your new garden bed is one of the best ways essentially it's causing um, forming a barrier 
and allowing you to cultivate the soil that you want to cultivate. And so he saw that example and those soils tested were all fine, which was perfect. So it meant that because essentially it is the concern, like the amazing thing about tomato plants and anything that you're growing food that you're eating it is it's bringing up all those vitamins and nutrients um, but also would be bringing up contaminants if they were there and so finding ways to deal with that but generally speaking the soil is also amazing at dealing with different things so um, the fascinating thing that Dr Solomon Matt found out um, when he was testing particularly the community garden beds was there was an over application of phosphorus so essentially had these really enthusiastic uh, gardeners who went with the notion of if a little is good more must be great and it was also a reflection of the waste streams that they were using so it was free horse manure being applied and it's great because you know this is a a waste that um, they're reusing um, closing the loop but um, there needed to be some communication, some education about <laughs> levels of um, P as a result, um, which, you know, people happily took on as well. So I think, yeah, it's, it's being mindful of the environment that you're working with. And so, yeah. So if you're worried about, like, heavy metals in the soil, the best thing you can do is have a raised garden bed with soil that you know. <laughs> that's right, <laughs> yeah. that's right. And the reality, the testing did show that levels were all within safe bounds. Like we are very lucky in South Australia, in, in metro South Australia, that, yeah, it's not typically a site of something that we have to be really worried about. Mm. The next question from the BSSA committee is, does Hannah have any advice for people who are living in highly urban areas with little to no backyard space but who still want to grow their own veggies? Yes, thank you. Um, I think get to know your neighbours is mm. one of the first things. Um, so I was talking to someone just the other day about the fact that they lived in um, a block of flats and when they realised that there was more than just them who wanted to do so. They approached the landlord about potentially using a space that was out the front, that was common area. And so they used this space and the biggest issue to figure out was um, who would pay for the water, you know. And so they negotiated through that process and essentially they came and they had to figure out, OK, well, if we grow this, does that mean anyone can pick it or does that mean... And they had to go through a process that our lovely community gardeners have gone through um, many times as they've been setting up the different community gardens. And the best thing is they're quite a good model to look at, to learn from and how they've managed because they don't all operate the same way. So some of the community gardens around Adelaide operate on an individual plot basis, but they might have shared space. And then others might operate where everything is for community, but only for those who have paid to be members. And then others might be, no, no, we just grow and people can come and go as they like and... So, yeah, so you've got a lot of options to look at. So I think getting to know your neighbours and finding out, you know, is there ways that we can look at? Is there space that we haven't looked at in the same way before? And so some of that might be 
Um, there might be a guest car park, for example, and that, you know, isn't very used and potentially you could put the raised container beds on a space like that and use up space that even though you, you looked before and didn't see soil, there could be soil just in a in a different way. So, yeah, finding out from people around you and um, there are, you know, if you've got a balcony, you can still grow. And I think um, one of our you know, biggest examples in Australia is Indira Naidu, who has this amazing balcony garden who grows lots of food that she can eat from there and I think that's the thing I think often people think of balconies can only have the most hardy or you know don't necessarily think about edibles when they're thinking about balcony gardens but it is a space that we can grow Um, you just need to be mindful of where the wind is often coming from the sun and um, the other elements like rain so I think yeah just looking around and having those conversations to know and just being I guess yeah a little bit more mindful I personally looking at household and agriculture however community gardens are an amazing way for people to connect in when there is no space at home and there's not that opportunity and I think that is why we've seen community gardens proliferate as much as we have because it does offer another space for people to garden in. How could someone find a community garden like in their community there is a website so mm-hmm. i think it's something like sacommunityguns.org or so and so as each new one is formed um then it would go onto there and I, there's at least is that over 50 now so yeah the council is another way so your councils are amazing at knowing what they've gotten around so and there's always an environmental or a sustainability officer that you can ask these questions of and they can point you in the direction they can also answer whether there's plans for particular land so I know when people have had their eye on land and approach to find out is this a space that we can use or not so um, I think yeah talking accounts and of course your neighbours <laughs> especially if they've been there longer than you there's a good chance they'll know. We're coming to the last questions now which is making me a bit sad I could talk to you all day. <laughs> the next question from the committee was I'd be keen to know where to start in terms of veggie gardens Uh, For example, what are super basic or good couple plants to start out with? Mm, I think, so my mother has a few (laughs) kind of adages or rules or whatever you want to call it. She always says, grow what you're going to eat. And there's no point in... They can kind of be taken two ways. There's no point growing everything. Like you're trying to plant 20 different things and they all have different needs and things like that. But also it might be fabulous to grow this really exotic... I don't know, plant that you've never grown before, but if it ripens and you're not keen to eat it, then you've grown an ornamental. So if you are trying to be an urban farmer and you are trying to eat what you grow, then looking at what you actually want to eat is a good start. The other part is kind of thinking about who you're involving. So I've got a couple of small children and um, attention span is always a fun one. So um, we always would grow radishes. They don't particularly love radishes because if you forget about them, then they get big and they get spicy. But the good thing is if you get them early, you get kids who eat radishes because they're not spicy yet, but also they pop up so fast. So radishes are a real um, giver in terms of you get back quite quickly from it. And the other part that I tend to always grow is tomatoes because I eat tomatoes like apples. Um, (laughs) But early on, I, as a parent, I switched to the small varieties of tomatoes. So, you know, you've got your yellow grape, you've got your mini Roma, you've got um, all sorts of the smaller ones. And so that's because you get more of a crop 
and it means that the kids can go out there and pick a few and constantly pick a few. And so I will always grow them and at the same time I'll always grow basil. And I always just thought that's just what you did because who doesn't love Insulata Caprice, basil, tomato, (laughs) bocconcini? And I discovered that the reason they grow together is they're companion plants. They actually help um, each other in terms of pest and disease resistance as well. So the Italians knew a lot and continue to know a lot. And we just thought it was a taste thing, but it's also yeah that aspect as well. So um, I think start small, start with what you want to eat and do do what I should do. And that's successively plant. <laughs> so I always get really enthusiastic, put stuff in the ground and then see it come up. And instead of going, right, that's when I should plant the next um, plant of something, if I want to make sure I've got a successive harvest <laughs> instead I don't and then I regret it later so but you know it's a learning each time brilliant tips <laughs> I'm gonna use those going home <laughs> I can't believe that puzzle and tomato belong together they're really great I match know made in heaven. it is oh a match made in heaven and there's also different types of basil so it doesn't have to be you know the one variety mm. unfortunately this is my last question yeah. <laughs> um what's your favorite thing to grow in your garden Oh, it has to be tomatoes. Yeah. (laughs) It's just, yeah, you know, there's nothing quite like it. I mean, yeah, we live in an age where you can get anything from the supermarket at any time, but you cannot get a tomato that you pick up. Suddenly your hand smells like tomato, the whole air about you, and then you eat it and that mouth explosion is fabulous. Thank you so much, Hannah. I hope that, well, I know that the people listening will have a new perspective on mm. on gardening or maybe they will now identify as urban farmers yes hopefully um, mm. i'm certainly feeling inspired to go outside and get some dirt under my fingernails <laughs> <laughs> thank you thank you much appreciated we hope you enjoyed this episode the bssa podcast is recorded on ghana land we celebrate the living connection between the ghana people and the biodiversity of their ancestral home This podcast is produced by the Biology Society of South Australia. It is also aired on Radio Adelaide 101.5 on The Green Room. Our intro song is composed and performed by Darcy Whittaker. If you want to listen to more episodes, find them wherever you get your podcasts. One, three, one, two, and hey. Hey. (laughs) (laughs) You want to say hi?